Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 152 of Smart Enough to Know Better. We're a podcast of science! Comedy! Ignorance! I'm Dan Beeston. I'm Gregoire. And we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And today, we're talking to Dr. Dwayne Hamacher about Indigenous astronomy. For as long as I've been aware of astronomy, it's always been taught to me from now what I realise is a very Western perspective. Something, when you learn about the names, they always seem to be the names of Greek heroes in the sky or stories from Western culture. But of course, this is just one paradigm, one way of looking at it. And I've become more aware as time's gone on that there are many other ways of looking at the sky. So to tell us about the Indigenous Australian perspective, please welcome Dr. Dwayne Hamaker from the Monash University, the Indigenous Studies Centre. Yay, thanks for having me on. (laughs) It's really interesting to me that we just seem to have forgotten. 400 years, we've had telescopes and 1609 or so, and we've kind of gone this now path of everything in the sky is is solidified. It's all definitely Western, 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 but there's a much older perspective out there, isn't there? Yes, there is. And I think uh, in addition to knowing there's an older perspective, we also oftentimes tend to fail to realize that much of what we think is Western astronomy and Western science and philosophy was actually based on previous non-Western cultures. Right. The people of Australia, we're talking about a culture that is, at last time I checked, they're saying about seventy-five to 80,000 years have been on this continent, one contiguous culture the entire time. They would obviously have been using the sky to navigate, as many people do, and uh, learning about the sky that way. But it's deeper than that, isn't it? It's it's not, inverted commas, just navigation. No, exactly right. I mean, Australia is quite interesting because you've got hundreds of distinct cultures Mm. on the continent that go back. I mean, who knows? If you talk to most elders, they'll say, we've always been here, of Mm. course. You know, Mm. it's... It just becomes this thing where every every couple of years it gets pushed back another ten, twenty, thirty thousand years. There's mm. there's evidence that it could be back as one hundred twenty thousand years. Oh my but, goodness! You know, <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, moving away from all that, it's it's a freaking long time, regardless. Yes. So the point is, there's these ancient systems about the stars that those voices just often are not heard. And when people try to say this, I mean, this is I'm not the first person to come along and say that Aboriginal people have astronomy. Mm than other academics, but there have been Aboriginal people themselves saying this for a long time, but mm. people just don't listen, you mm. know? It is sort of, oh, well, you know, Western astronomy, that's that's the real astronomy. What you're doing isn't real astronomy, mm. and they're just myths and legends and, yeah, whatever, blah, blah, racist comment, blah, blah, Western astronomy, blah, blah, ignore. Mm. I mean, that's kind of the narrative that gets that gets used so often. And when it does get discussed, people often think, oh, well, it's, it's navigation. Well, navigation, mm. you're right, is one part of that. It's mm. part of many. I think the reason navigation gets used so much is because the Polynesians and the Pacific cultures are so famous for that. That's what everybody knows. That's what everybody automatically thinks of. Mm-hmm. It's like when you talk about a stone arrangement, people automatically go, oh, Stonehenge. Mm-hmm. But there's stone arrangements that have been around for thousands of years before Stonehenge. It's just the most famous example. Mm. I realize that 
my background had made me complicit in all this because I must admit I did also go oh, it's, it's it's just myths and legends and I, I I wasn't even actively trying to be a bastard I just grew up stewing in that thought process and it took meeting in strange enough the people of Australia the indigenous people and working with them to actually go oh wait I'm utterly ignorant about this and <laughs> I didn't even realize how ignorant I was it was it was a an unknown for me anyway an unknown unknown and the, but the more I get to unpack it the more I get to learn about this the more interesting I it becomes because suddenly there's a whole new area of knowledge to open up and to explore, which is really exciting. Oh, exactly right. And I, look, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I wasn't in the same position years ago either. You know, I did all my foundational training in astrophysics, did my bachelor's and master's in physics. It's easy to come up with that viewpoint. It's a common situation that happens. I think a lot of astronomers get very defensive about this, but there does tend to be a situation where we as astronomers and astrophysicists and physicists in general tend to think we're sort of at the, the top of the pyramid when it comes to, or the bottom of the pyramid, <laughs> how you want to see it, when it comes to the sciences. Oh, we're the hardest, we're the most rigorous, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> we rail against the mathematicians who claim they're at the bottom, and then yep. we refer to everything else as soft science. Oh, the biologists are soft, <laughs> geologists are soft. And, oh, with your namby-pamby soft chemistry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. The chem- oh, the, the, the so, color you know, science. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we've got this narrative that we've all been guilty of perpetuating and mm. i think some of us now and, and like yourself are starting to realize that that's a bunch of bullshit mm. and now we have the situation where we're learning about these indigenous knowledge systems and learning about the love there's, there's so many different levels and layers to it and mm. what i've really done is just taken out one layer of that what i talk about doesn't represent the entirety of indigenous astronomical knowledge systems by far but what i do talk about is the scientific layer because there's so many other layers to that and there's so many other layers it wouldn't even really be appropriate for me to even try to comment on because mm-hmm. i can't talk about that from an indigenous perspective because i'm not indigenous mm. i'm a white american guy but i i certainly having all my foundational training in the sciences and in astronomy and astrophysics i can see when I'm reading the old accounts, when I'm learning from the elders, when I'm looking at some of the archaeological sites, I can see all the layers of astronomical knowledge and scientific knowledge that's embedded within that. And that's really helped open up my eyes. It's, once again, another white man's perspective, hooray, uh, <laughs> from my point of view. I've been fascinated with the idea of coding knowledge, inverted commas, scientific knowledge into stories and into an oral culture to be passed down over generations and generations and generations. So these stories aren't just a fun story or a myth story if when you unpack them they are start to become real knowledge that's encoded into them that can be passed on if you can't write something down you've got to get people to remember them somehow like the epic poems of greece where they would memorize these huge like the iliad and that sort of stuff they just memorize all this stuff and pass it on as knowledge exactly right now there's a few things i think we often tend to forget the development of written language is fairly recent in human history Mm -hmm. and as humans, we evolve to learn to memorize. Um, Nobel Prize in medicine a few years back went to some academics, and I can't remember the names off the top of my head. <laughs> Ironically. Um, but they, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, who, <laughs> who showed how the biological foundation of the method of loci, how human brains have evolved to associate memory to a place. And a place can be a location, it can be an object, it can be anything, hmm. you know, including the stars. So when you've got huge, massive amounts of information and knowledge you've got to commit to memory, you can't just sit down and list long, boring, dry sets of facts. Mm. I mean, you could, but it's 
it's much better to encode them into a narrative, to encode them into song, to encode them into material culture, artworks, you know, and that's one of the things about Aboriginal art. I love Aboriginal art, but I get really frustrated when you go into an art shop in Circular Quay in Sydney or in the city in Melbourne or mm. something like that. And they're selling these artworks for, you know, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars and they're big, mm. beautiful artworks. But people buying them usually have no idea about the story behind it. Oh, this mm. is a fire dream. Or this is a uh, seven sisters dreaming mm. and they look beautiful. They go home and they've dropped 25 grand on a painting and it looks really nice and they're super flashy flat, but they have no idea in most cases what it's actually about. It's trying to capture um, a, a moment in time or a concept or a whole society. Yeah. It's a map. It's um, mm. it's a textbook of knowledge and the motifs, every brushstroke, every color has significance and has meaning. It's like it's you taking a book and put it on a, on a canvas. Mm. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of people don't quite realize or really understand a lot that they are aesthetically beautiful, but that's mm. not their main purpose. Mm. And so, you know, with, with all of this, you've got to find ways of encoding that knowledge. And a, a lot of people, especially those who tend to ascribe to more white supremacist kind of ideas, often make comments sort of like, oh, well, they didn't even have a written language. Mm. How civilized, you know, could they have been? And it's like, well, okay, let's go back and look oh, at a few hang things. On, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've seen people who know how to write, and they're not necessarily civilized. Have you heard of a site <laughs> called Twitter.com? <laughs> they right? know how to use language, <laughs> written language. <laughs> exactly. So, you, you know, one thing I point out to people yeah, and those same kinds of people will crack on about all oh, the invention of the wheel, which, you mm. know, neither Europeans or white people, however you want to define them, are in- mm. invented, mm. you know, or written language or any of that kind of stuff. And let's think, okay, so the same people who say that tend to really push off their credentials from Northern Europe. They yeah. like to misappropriate the Vikings and the Celts and the yes. Angles and the Saxons. <laughs> I'm like, okay, let's look at the Celts, for example. They use very similar kinds of memorization techniques. And from what I understand, a lot of Celtic cultures through the Iron Age, they forbade the writing down of their language. Right. Okay. It wasn't something they didn't have. They actually forbade it. And the reason was it was believed that if you if something was by word of mouth, it was solid. But you could – if you wrote it down, you could just change it. Right. Yes. So they were critics of sort of what they considered to be revisionist history. You know, that's a whole <laughs> different – Kettle of fish there, but it's like fake you know. news, Celtic fake news. What what is yeah, the danger exactly. in a memorized language like that for it to be distorted? Like because it's it's it seems to me like it's a generational game of telephone. How do you stop successive generations adding purple monkey dishwasher to the end of right. uh, of the story? That example always gets brought up because that's the one that most of us in modern Western society are, are familiar with. Yeah, well, they, I mean, they can't even get a reboot of the Ghostbusters right. <laughs> they had a, like we're terrible at it <laughs> yes so i think what we have to realize is number one our survival is not dependent on that mm. number two there's no checks and balances that push for accuracy it's an exercise we do in class it's fun there's always some kid who has to put some rude or smart ass comment in the middle of it so mm-hmm. grandma went to the supermarket ends up with something the person at the when i did it in my class you know, the, the <laughs> poor girl at the end of the thing wouldn't even repeat what was said you know you can tell exactly what students and put something disgusting and rude in there so but going back to how this can be prevented you know when you have this knowledge passed down it is important you can't just go to your phone and look it up or even mm. you know back when when i was a kid maybe you guys mean kids you go look up an encyclopedia you know those things yes. are 
I won't, oh no, Dwayne, we are we are probably much older than you. But bless, probably, bless yeah, your heart, not. sir. Bless your heart. But yes, Encyclopedia. I grew up in Encyclopedia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure all all yeah, mine was on no parchment. <laughs> <laughs> I used an abacus and walked up hill. <laughs> you kids don't know how lucky you have it. <laughs> <laughs> so, getting back to the oral traditions, you had multiple generations passing knowledge down you had to go through ceremony where you demonstrated that you had learned this stuff and you had to repeat things word for word you had to do the movements of the dances exactly as you were taught them the lyrics and cadence of the songs exactly as you were taught and there was reward for doing it correctly and punishment for doing it wrong mm. now if you were to replay the game of telephone generations <laughs> of students and their survival was dependent on it, and there was reward for doing it correctly and punishment for doing it incorrectly. Even in that little experiment, you would see a massive change in uh, how knowledge was passed down. As an ex-teacher of high school students, I'm I'm so excited by that idea right now. <laughs> I just like to point out that oh, it would be so good. <laughs> punishments, exactly. punishments, and rewards. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So you can you can sort of see in that context how knowledge can be passed down. And mm. the, the aspects of the narrative could be changed mm. without the foundational knowledge that it's explaining, without that being changed. Mm. And mm. the old traditions get brought forward by a lot of people who don't understand them as if it's – the story was taught this way and it has to be exactly this way and any deviation from that will be wrong. I mean, look, you go back and look at ancient knowledge – oral traditions or elements of that. But, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert on that area because mm-hmm. I'm not. I don't mm-hmm. consider myself an expert in any area of indigenous knowledge because how the hell could some white American guy be an expert in this stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the, the, the point is I can see a lot of the scientific information encoded in these knowledge systems, and I can see examples of where this knowledge goes back thousands and thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the neat crossroads of Western science and indigenous science. I've got to preface all this by saying that indigenous science has its own value regardless of what Western science thinks. Mm -hmm. Its value isn't dependent on the value that Western astronomers attribute to it. Mm -hmm. But if you go back and look at the crossroads of these areas, you see here's a meteorite crater that Western science says is four or 5,000 years old, and there's oral traditions about a fire devil running down from the sun, hitting the ground, creating these holes, mm. blasting debris all over the place, people dying, fire mayhem and destruction. You can't just look at that and say, oh, what an interesting coincidence. Yeah. I can give you a Western Australian example, Wolf Creek, the Wolf Creek Crater in uh, northern Western Australia. The people put that together, as in Western people put that together. And the astronomers are saying, oh, this is a, a meteorite that I, I think, I'm trying to remember the top of my head, it was like 60,000 years ago this came down and, and blasted this out. Then the people started looking in and actually asking the people of the area, are there any stories about this? And there's tons of stories about this, about how this crater was created and the stories that encoded into the, the local people's knowledge base about how something came from the sky, as you just said, and made this massive crater. As I said, it's not coincidence. They, they were watching. They were, they were aware of what was going on. It, it's mind-blowing to me when I read that, but it shouldn't be mind-blowing. If you have a culture that's lasted that long and that has a memory, of course they're going to remember these massive things that happened in their environment. Exactly right. And Wolf Creek is a really interesting example. Uh, the Jaru people call it Gondamalal. Ah. There's a number of different views of it. You know, there's several different elders who tell different stories about the crater. And this is the one thing about indigenous knowledge systems is that it's not dogmatic. It's not like there's only one view and everybody else is wrong and we're going to have battle to the death over who's right and wrong like you see in so many modern religions. Mm. <laughs> now, what I find fascinating about Gandamal, the Wolf Creek Crater, is that 
prior to this year, the only published paper that talks about the age of the crater was back in, in I think it was the early 90s, and it was by Gene Shoemaker. Mm-hmm. And it was part of an abstract of a conference paper. And he said a range between one you know, sort of dating technique of maybe 40,000 years, which had a huge error bar, mm. and less than 300,000 years right. by some other technique. Yeah, right. And it was an abstract, and that's the only thing that was published. So for a very long time, Wolf Creek Crater was 300,000 years old. That's what was used. That's what was quoted. Mm-hmm. And fairly re- I think it was a paper published earlier this year. A group of academics and researchers used a whole range of different dating techniques for that particular crater. And they came up with ages ranging from like, 15 or 20,000 years to 120,000 years, right. but sort of settled on. It's roughly, you know, in this ballpark of 60 or 70,000 years. Mm-hmm. Now I'm sure anybody listening is going to go find that paper and don't take my word for it. Go check it out. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. But, uh, we've programmed our listeners for many a long time to go check all the stuff out. So we'll, we'll probably find that paper for you as well and put it on the links. <laughs> I'm sure I'll get something wrong. They'll be more than happy to correct me. On <laughs> but the, the neat thing about that is, you know, some of these old Jaru traditions are saying, you know, this thing, it's implied that it was a witness event. Mm. And then when scientists go and do the research, find actually this thing is a lot younger than we thought. Mm. So I'm not going to try to draw too long a bow from that, but mm. it certainly is interesting when you see those sorts of traditions. And, mm. and then you see examples like Norala or Goss's Bluff Crater, which is west of Alice Springs, which is 142 million years old. Right, <laughs> um, but the Western Aranda traditions of that and the scientific traditions are pretty much exactly the same. What are the calendar systems that Indigenous Australians would use? Oh, good grief! There's hundreds. Mm. You know, it's it really depends on the region, and this is one of the things mm. that's interesting about Indigenous knowledge. It's really developed in situ. It's really developed for the local environment. Mm. The Noongar people in Western Australia around the Perth area, there's six seasons, and I don't remember all their names, but it's six seasons spread across the year. So I remember that part. I should know more than this. <laughs> but um, <laughs> and, and I only found out recently, which is very exciting, I got to talk to Dr. Noel Nanup, an Indigenous elder, and he explained to me that they found the start of the year when the Pleiades are due north, just on the horizon at sunset. And I got very excited about that because I, I always like the Pleiades and, and the Ryan. I, I know that area of the sky very well. And so now I know exactly how to find the start of the, the year ah. of the people because I know I can find it when it's north. And so that was – and then the six seasons stretch out from there. But as, as you said before, Dwayne, it's, yeah. it's dependent on the people. Well, I, I guess the question I'm asking is are we able to find these stories in the literature about the meteors and establish how long ago that these stories took place from their point of view? Yes, we can. I, I, I've published a few papers on this specific topic. Um, in fact, I think it's 2014, I published a paper with John Goldsmith, who did a PhD with Ikrar mm. at, at Curtin. He did a lot of work on, on Aboriginal astronomy. A lot of it was astrophotography and documentation, but a big part of it was also working with Jaru elders, which he'd been doing for like 10 or 20 years, something like that, mm. about that crater in particular. When we go back as scientists and we look at these oral traditions and we see records about the sea level rising and volcanic eruptions and tsunamis and meteorite impacts, we can get an idea of how old these traditions are. Now, that might not be of critical importance to the Aboriginal people. They don't. Some, some people say, well, you know, what does it matter how old it mm. is? And that's a fair enough point. Mm. I think for the study of morality from an anthropological or a neuroscientific or psychological context, it's really interesting to see how far back these traditions can go based on that. Mm. And, you know, we're, we're about to submit a paper 
we're going to submit it to nature, you know, no. be fun to see no. if it gets accepted or not, but you know, <laughs> yes. it's going back and looking at a Tasmanian oral tradition that talks about the positions of stars in the sky that link in with the time that Tasmania was connected to the mainland. Oh my goodness. And they coincide perfectly, at, you know, about 13,000 years ago. That's, that's really old. Yeah. You know? Yes, it is. Yeah, we sort of, I think we kind of, we get stuck with that. We sort of think it's, I, I always have a big brain jump when it comes to time and the indigenous time, like this deep time of indigenous culture, because mm. people sort of say, oh, this stuff came from, uh, it's, it's 5,000 years old. How ancient is that? Or this is 10,000 <laughs> years old. And you're like, it's not even, I mean, yes, it is. I mean, the 10,000 years is pretty good, you know, for, for a Stonehenge or, you know, in that, that's pretty good, 6,000 years old. But then you go, but then there's this stretching back further and further and further, but we don't seem to give the same level of respect to that thing or that knowledge system that we do for a 5,000-year-old one, which is fantastic to me. I just thought it blows my mind every time. It is. And, and, you know, we we look at things, you know, we look at material culture. Look at rock art, for example. In other parts of the world where you've got rock art that goes back thousands of years, that's like UNESCO heritage listed, Mm. you know, Europe, for example, places in France where you have Neolithic cave art or even Neanderthal rock art that goes back Thirty or 40,000 years. Hmm. That's like UNESCO World Heritage listed. That's a matter of national pride. It's protected. It's, you know, at all levels of government and citizen. But here in Australia, you've got ancient rock art just being casually destroyed that goes back like thirty or 40,000 years. And people are like, oh, yeah, whatever. And just yeah. pave over it, plow through it. You know, yeah. people go out and destroy it. It's really disgusting how this ancient art is just treated like absolute shit yeah. in this country and nobody cares about it. I, I just had a, a brain explosion. Something I just put two bits of fact together. So Neanderthals died out supposedly about 30,000 years ago, I think, about then. And so now we're talking about... I, my brain just went, hang on a minute. Indigenous Australians were... Did it, uh, <laughs> like, as in there were Neanderthals still in the world. And there were... I mean, I just... I'm sorry. I, my, I just suddenly put two disparate facts and it broke my brain for a moment. Uh, I'm sorry for... Uh, every time I think I understand deep time, my brain goes... No, you don't. You don't get... No, no, sorry. I'm okay. I'm all right, everyone. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm not going to die. Phew. Uh, but no, you're right. Yeah, so there's a serious nature of it, though. Uh, you're right. Um, in Carnarvon in Queensland, the, the Carnarvon Gorge, there are cathedrals. There's like... It's one called... It's called the cathedral anyway. And it's it's amazing rock art into the wall. And I'd like to point out, it makes me laugh every time I see it because it's beautifully carved, but it's vulvas. Nothing but vulvas. Thousands of vulvas mm. carved into the rock. don't know why it's there. I mean, I've read the plaque and... It, I, I mean, the, the plaque doesn't explain it very well. It's just saying it's been there for thousands of years. And I'm like, why did, why did they feel it necessary, the people of that area, to, to, to make graphic, graphically well-carved vulvas and, and thousands of them spread across this area? Uh, I just need to know. That's, that's what I, I asked the know. guy who did the thing down at MoMA in uh Yes, yeah, yeah, the good point. Yeah, moment, the moment. So there's always these things like, what's going on here? I want to know the stories behind them. It's always fascinating to me, but I don't know who to ask. And what's interesting is, unlike a lot of places, it's not easily accessible. It's or it's not known. It's not known by us. So it's frustrating. Right. I, I would put myself out and probably go on a limb and say, if it's covered in vulvas, it's probably women's business. And it's yes. probably restricted to men to know. <laughs> no, that's, and that's, you made a good point then. There's an interesting thing that I've had to get used to as well is uh, uh, women's business and men's business is, is really interesting to me because we just don't have that as much. Uh, in fact, 
Yeah, well, no, we won't say at all, but as much in 21st century culture. And I had it dealt to me firsthand, and it was fascinating to me. I was out in the Midwest of Western Australia on tour around schools, and there was an amazing indigenous painting of the Pleiades, and it was on the wall, and it was, it was in a, a restaurant we were at. And the lady who ran the restaurant was like, saw me talk, looking at it, and she was like, oh, do you want to know about that? And I said, yes. And she said, well, you can't. You're, <laughs> you're, you're, you're a man. And I was like, oh, okay. And he said, it's women's business. And she went, I'll tell all your colleagues because they're all women and but you need to leave the room so i, I went okay and I, i'll play the game and I, and I got out and i left the room and i went for a walk around town and i gave them 25 minutes i came back and i sat back down and I said, so what's the story and all my colleagues went no 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 it's women's business <laughs> yeah, that way. and then i was like oh damn it i thought i'd got around it but no and that sounds really that's that is inappropriate of me but it's it's it was this amazing passing of knowledge from from women to women and there's obviously for men to men for other things as well but yeah anyway yeah it's really really it's alien and to me anyway and it's and and makes it really exciting to know and i must admit when people say you can't know something i just want to know it more <laughs> my brain itches <laughs> so in western culture we used the stars to do a lot of navigation initially and you know, i think about sextants and telescopes and such Did, were the stars used for navigation by indigenous australians Yes. Yep. Uh, and there are different ways the stars were used. So we often are drawn to the traditional view that it's learning the azimuths of the different stars and using those to find your directions and then using them to navigate, you mm-hmm. know, by following a particular star. Second star to the right, straight on till morning, right? <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and we do find examples of that around the country. In the Torres Strait, you know, I've only been gifted or shared a little bit of navigational knowledge. Mm. One of them in particular was using Bazom or Bitum, depending on which you, if you're in the east or the west islands, um, which is the shark. Mm-hmm. And the shark is used to find north. Mm-hmm. Well, the shark is made up of, it's the Big Dipper. You know, it's Ursa Major. And it's low on the horizon because they're near the equator on the southern half of it, so it doesn't get particularly high. Mm. But in the same way that those of us in the northern hemisphere will use the two stars at the end of the Dipper to point towards Polaris, mm. they use basically the same thing. I mean, Polaris may be below the horizon by, what, 11 degrees, but they know that 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 those the gills of the shark, which are those two stars, do point towards the north. Right. And the Southern Cross is used to find south, and mm. you can use Orion to find east and west because it rises due east and due west right now. Mm-hmm. But aside from learning how to find cardinal points using the stars – which is something I wrote into the National Curriculum for Aboriginal Astronomy recently. Um, there's also different ways of navigating, and that one of them that was shared with us by a man named Gilar Michael Anderson, who's a senior lawman of the Wallyi Nation in northern New South Wales near Gadugo. And he showed us how another different way, which is not necessarily following a star, but using the stars as a map. And the way this works is... You have a trade network that go all, all across the country, north, south, east, west. The idea that Aboriginal people were somehow isolated and just stayed in little areas wandering around aimlessly is mm. total rubbish. Mm. Or two particular song lines, star maps that were used were to go from northern New South Wales near Gaduga to the Bunya Mountains in Queensland and oh, wow. to Carnarvon Gorge. Which oh, we okay. About right, yeah. So what the people would do is they would find the best route from point A to point B. And as they figured out the route, you had to figure out – not only the best way to travel, you had to figure out you know, where the water holes are, where the food sources are, where the medicines are, where the best place to set up 
camp is. You had to figure all the stuff out. Mm. So once the people did that, they thought, okay, well, now we've got we've got to find a way of remembering and teaching this. So the stars worked as a perfect example. So the people would find particular groups, constellations of stars, and say, well, these stars sort of represent the waypoints along the pathway, like you use on a modern GPS. We're going to build a narrative and a story that links them together. So at night, in one part of the year, the community would teach the younger generations, well, here's the story and the song line about how to get across the landscape, and here's your waypoints, and the stars work as waypoints. It's not a a one-on-one relationship. It's not exactly perfectly aligned. You know, it doesn't have to. Mm-hmm. So the point is the students, the younger people, they learn this later in the year. They know how to travel across the landscape, but they're not traveling at night following the stars. They travel during the day just remembering the stars as a mnemonic, as a memory aid, as a mental map. And what's interesting about those maps and song lines is when the colonists first started coming out into those parts of the country, the aboriginal people were very warm and welcoming. They showed the people how to get across the landscape Well, they would follow these same tracks mm-hmm. these pathways and when the colonists wanted to find food well they knew where to go when the colonists wanted to find the water holes they knew where to go mm-hmm. so the aboriginal people showed them this and then the colonists would set up camps at these water holes you know oftentimes along rivers or places like that mm-hmm. and develop settlements and those pathways became rudimentary roads and fast forward 150 years and now you've got entire highway networks across <laughs> Southeast Queensland, they're basically these tracks. And where those stars are, those waypoints became towns and regional cities. So if you look at southeastern Queensland, a lot of those towns and those roads connecting them, even the modern highways, are based on Aboriginal star maps. Wow. It blew my mind coming from Carnarvon. Uh, I lived in Biloela in the past. I taught there. So going to Carnarvon and then stopping on the side of the road. It was just a little sign that said historical monument or something. I went, oh, I'll I'll have a look at a long drive. And I was trying to work out what I was looking at. And I realized it was a waterhole that had been carved into solid stone and it went down three meters and it was just filled up with water and it was made by indigenous people over thousands and tens and thousands of years carving it bit by bit and making this huge water collection point so it was like a waypoint as you said before they get to this point and then they they can drink from the water and then they put a rock over the top of it to stop animals falling and that sort of stuff and it fills up naturally with water for the next group of people to come through or them to come back and i was just went so they're going how do you grind a three-meter hole deep that's only 60 centimeters to like a meter wide? I, I just I sat there for ages going, how long would that take with, without using metal tools or machinery? It was just once again that idea of, good Lord, the engineering expertise to make that must have been insane. Just It blew my mind again. Well, exactly right. And, and, and people oftentimes don't realize the technological advancements that Aboriginal people had tens of thousands of years ago. You know, the first bakers, the first agriculturists were actually Aboriginal people. Um, this goes back <laughs> oh, really? a very long ways. Okay. Yes. And, okay. you know, wow. Aboriginal people made water essentially kind of run uphill with the eel traps out in Western Victoria. And in Western Victoria and other places, you had villages. You had houses. Oh, really? Um, okay. And they weren't, little, they weren't little stick mud huts like people trying to make them out to be. They were full-on, huge, you know, like three meters high whole villages of sedentary Aboriginal communities and villages. These things got wiped out in early days. I mean, they're well-known archaeologically now, 
But when the colonists first came, they came out and they realized it's like there's whole fields of wheat and grain, you know, native mm. sort of versions of that. Mm. And there were villages and there were this, all these all this complex engineering happening. A lot of that got wiped out. So if you're mm. going to come in and claim a land as terra nullius, you can't have <laughs> intelligent, advanced people living there. They have to you have to treat them as if they're the flora and fauna. And they're just sort of wandering around mm. aimlessly. And it's this narrative that's been built up for so long. So if you read Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu Black Seed, he goes through all the early colonial accounts that describe this. So yes, there's archaeological evidence, mm. but the early colonists, as they were moving out across the strait, were seeing all this stuff and writing this down. And the same thing occurred for the Native Americans too, didn't it? They had quite uh, substantial yeah. cities. Mm. Exactly right. And so much of the narrative is being changed now properly to reflect what the reality of what you've had in this country and other places around the world. But mm. there's still so much resistance to that. And even when I talk about the astronomy stuff, one of the things people come in and say, oh, well, they didn't have telescopes, therefore they couldn't have astronomy. <laughs> or, which I find that yeah. funny. So just from a point of view, just because my hero, astronomy hero is Tycho Brahe, which is before telescopes. I mean, and because and, right. he, he was a lunatic yeah. with a golden nose and all the rest. It's, it's a whole reason. I won't go there. I won't go because I'll talk for hours. There are many astronomers before. I mean, Kepler, for goodness sake, was pre, pre-telescope. So to say... You can't be an astronomer without telescopes is insane. But anyway, that's that's just my bugbear. Did the Native Australians, did they have people who were specifically... If there were astronomers, are there Aboriginal astronomers? Were there people in the community that had that role? And the answer is yes. Ah. Yes. In the Torres Strait, for example, Zugabul Mabai, I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, literally means star man. And their (laughs) job was to keep track of the stars. Mabai meant man, Zugabul represented to a, a tradition about Tagai and his crew who became stars, but it literally means star man. Their job was the astronomer. They sat out every night and kept track of everything in the sky. They would look for when the stars rose and set. As you mentioned before, the meridian crossing of the Pleiades hmm. at sunset for that community out near Perth hmm. was the start of winter. Hmm. Mm. I'm assuming it was winter, so you know whatever season that is, it ties in with that time of the year. Mm. Actually, that wouldn't be winter it's, at all. I'm, I'm it was um, Feb- February February seventh. It was. I yeah, remember, that, that's, yeah. <laughs> I just remember. <laughs> I only just only because he just told me that recently. <laughs> the only reason I remember. You get you get that stuff all over the place. So mm. they have uh, the Kex was a, a, a time for harvesting mm. their gardens, mm. and that was the Kex star, which is Arcturus. Depending on where you are, there's a whole bunch of seasons. Mm. There's usually the wet and the dry, and the sub seasons within that. So mm. the Torres Strait, there's the Sagir, there's the Cookie, there's the Nege, which are the three main seasons. Okay. There's little sub-seasons within that. But the point is, yes, there was a person whose job was to be the astronomer. Wow. You had that across Australia as well. And, and you realize how it, it wouldn't just be, I'm going to guess here, it wouldn't just be the astronomer as in it's just a person who looks at stars and people go, why are they doing that? There's no reason. You know, sometimes people look at astronomers in the modern age and go, why do we pay money for this person to look at black holes? What's that about? Who cares? You know, I'd, I'm not that person, but people do. But that person would be tied into the day-to-day life of, of the group and it would that knowledge would be useful for hunting or for gathering. I mean, for the one I'm thinking of is the, the emu in the Milky Way. And then and then when it's lying on the, when the, the emu is lying on its belly on the horizon, that means it's time for the emus to start laying their eggs. 
And so people know that in a certain number of weeks, they can go get emu eggs in Western Australia. I, I don't know if that's a cross Australia thing, but once again, it's all localized knowledge. I, when I was told that, I went, oh, okay. So once again, it's using the sky to, to ex- indicate when to go do certain things during the year. It's a calendar, using it as a calendar, I guess. Yes, exactly right. You, we, we get the emu across Australia. You also find that same idea in South America. Oh, right. So <laughs> it becomes one of these issues. The other thing I was going to mention before is a lot of people, when they try to debase this and, and degrade Aboriginal knowledge, they'll, just, they'll immediately start calling of astrology oh it's oh, like oh jesus right. gets such a tired <laughs> yeah. worn out argument oh it's just astrology mm. and these people who make this comment know nothing about astronomy astrology the history and philosophy of science or indigenous knowledge it's just mm. one of those things people throw out there to try to debase it oh it's just astrology mm. it's like oh shut the hell up don't talking about <laughs> um, yeah so there's not a lot of information about what my week's going to be like when saturn is inside the upturned emu oh yes right <laughs> i mean there are there are people out there right now who are exploiting this it's one of those funny things somebody made a comment oh you're an academic you're making all this money off of, <laughs> you know talking about aboriginal knowledge i'm like well first off yeah, I mean, I've got to have a job. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. idea that I'm making tons of money. I've got $150,000 in student loan debt sitting, you know, back in the U.S. <laughs> waiting for me right now. And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, but so one sorry. thing that I sort of thought about, it crossed my mind. I mean, there's no way in a million years I would ever do it. But there are plenty of people out there who are in the whole new age mystical uh, movement. I could continue plotting along as an academic, mm. or I could be an Eric Van Daniken and exploit this and appropriate <laughs> it and lie and just make shit up and be a millionaire. I mean, mm. there's no way to do that. It's disgusting to even think about. Mm. But it's like, do you know how much money somebody could make if they wanted to go in and just start making up bullshit? Because they do it all the time. Yeah. And they sell out the lecture halls of people who want to hear about ancient aliens you know, I was even invited to be on that oh, program oh, on no. the History Channel. Oh, no. Yeah, they invited me a few years ago. Uh, no. <laughs> and by the way, your whole stupid program, besides it being incredibly racist, has set our field back 20 or 30 years. Mm. There's people out there who have no problem jumping on that, and they're selling tickets to their little talks for 50, 60 bucks a person. Oh, and goodness. And they're selling their books on Aboriginal astrology, and they use old greek and classical astrology with an aboriginal twist and they're not aboriginal themselves and mm. you know there's people making all kinds of money off this i just i just think it's so disgusting yeah absolutely on so many levels and, and the whole thing about ancient aliens is so incredibly racist because it says well you obviously weren't smart enough yes to, to <laughs> build a stone arrangement or to develop any kind of knowledge based on empirical observation it must have been alien yeah i always freaks me out when people say that because you go because you don't understand it as a member of modern yeah. society or uneducated or educated or educated in your own way, whatever it is, doesn't mean that no one understood it. It's that weird idea. I can't make two blocks fit together very well. Therefore no one can. And it, yes, you exactly go, well, right. I can't, well, I don't know how to take out a spleen, but if my spleen ruptures, I'm pretty c- confident. I can go find a doctor who can do it. Like it's, it's yeah. the same thing for me. It's like, I don't know everything is a modern day society person. I live in a society, so I don't have to learn everything. I, I can learn what I need to know and, and survive and other things that I'm interested in. But other people will handle the other things. I can't fix a toilet. I'm useless. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you get, you get a lot of that going on. And it's, it's so frustrating to see people exploit these, these traditional knowledge systems for that kind of stuff. Mm. And it just frustrates me to no end. And there's so much of it around. You'd be surprised. Mm. Or maybe you wouldn't be surprised. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, one thing I know about the, some of the Western astronomy is that initially they thought there were gods traveling through the stars and then finally we worked out that there was a that there was a sun in the middle and all the planets were going around it what sort of astronomical models were in australia of what the solar system was like so it's interesting you've got uh, aboriginal 
traditions describe the synodic period of Venus, describe retrograde motion, describe the Earth being round. You know, from mm. down Nungar area, it was back in the 1800s, I forget who it was, ethnologists of some kind, asked one of the elders if the Earth was round or flat. Mm. And the elder said, well, it's round. Mm. And the ethnologist, you know, explained. He says, well, everything in nature is round. Rocks are round. Trees are <laughs> round. When the animals are chasing, they run in circles. When the white man gets lost in the bush, he walks in circles. <laughs> everything is round. Why would, why would the earth be any different? Yeah. You know? And when you think about this, you've also got to consider a few things. There are trade networks that go all across Australia from the West Coast to the East Coast, from the Northern Tip down to Tasmania mm. and network all the way across. And one thing the, the modern flat earth has never seemed to address is when you walk from a southern latitude to a northern latitude, the stars all shift in their mm. position. Mm -hmm. As we know, the celestial poles, the altitude of the celestial pole is your latitude. Oh, no, 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 they, no, they've got you there because it <laughs> uh, turns out Australia was made up. Oh yes, it doesn't exist. Oh, that's right. That's, that's right. right. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. We're all we're all paid. By the way, crisis have you guys actors. Check that. Yeah, you guys get your check. Yeah, Don't mention the check. Don't mention the check. Otherwise, everyone. Oh, we already know about it. It's the big pharma check we get for vaccines. It's the big <laughs> NASA check we get. You know, I don't even know why I work. I got so much money coming in from holding up this this fake <laughs> idea. From a, I look outside. I see Australia, but I realize I must be in a matrix simulation because Australia doesn't exist. I can't remember getting any of my checks. I think I'm inhaling too many chemtrails. <laughs> That's probably what it is. Vaccines have caused that. Oh, dear God. But <laughs> We'll run away from this. Run away, run away. <laughs> in all seriousness, whenever some people would travel from South Victoria, Tasmania, up mm. towards Queensland, some constellations that are circumpolar are no longer circumpolar. Mm. Constellations you couldn't see before are now rising. Everything's shifting as you move up. Mm. That's only going to work on a round Earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that people were very cognizant of this sort of thing, too. And the other thing that often gets brought into it is the idea of, of gods and what we oftentimes think of as mythology. You know, mm. supernatural heroes come down from the stars, morph into animals. Mm. The reason I think so much of this is the case, well, I think others have, have written about this extensively, is that when you want to create an oral tradition about something, you need to create a narrative. And within that narrative, you have to encode the social laws and information and the lore the L-O-R-E lore as well. And you need to do that in something people are going to remember. Well, storytelling is a fantastic way to do that. And when you tell stories, the stories can't be dry and boring. They've got to be imaginative. They've got to be interesting. You know, we don't talk about the boring shit we did last Tuesday mm. when it was get home from work, sit down, make dinner, you know. We all complain talk, about Game of Thrones. That's right. <laughs> you talk about the crazy Saturday night you had. You know, I mean, yep. it's probably a terrible analogy, but the point is it's, it can't be something dry and boring. It has to be something you remember. And that's where these quote-unquote gods, and none of the Aboriginal people will ever call them gods. You know, mm. it's sort of this Western influence of, of religion. Mm. But it's the idea of ancestors coming down and morphing into animals and Sometimes they do good things, sometimes they do bad things, and there's punishment. And what the narrative is telling you are all these different layers of knowledge. What sorts of behaviors are okay? What sorts of behaviors mm. are taboo? The relationship between the animals and how they interact and become stars, they're not becoming any random star. They become a star for a very, very significant purpose. 
So when that emu goes up into the sky or the wood ant becomes Arcturus or, you know, whatever animal becomes a star, there's a reason for that. It's because when the star rises or sets at dusk and dawn tells you things about the patterns and behaviors of that animal. Mm. And it's usually not just one thing either. You know, the emu in the sky is a good example. That's one of the phenomenal dark sky constellations, as you know. It's not made up of stars. It's made up of the dust lanes in the Milky Way. Mm-hmm. So when you see the re- the emu rising, well, this time of the year, right now, actually, there's a two, two and a half, three-month period where the emus are starting to lay their eggs. Mm-hmm. And in Uwali traditions, Gomorrah traditions, it's seen as a female, and she's running. Like she's running along the horizon because she runs and chases the mate. She finds a mate. They mate. She lays the clutch of eggs, and the emu eggs are huge. One emu egg can hold about a dozen chicken eggs. <laughs> That's you a big breakfast. The, exactly. The, the male emus sit on the nest and incubate the eggs. And if you think about this in terms of physics and biology, imagine the amount of energy it takes to produce these eggs for this clutch. Mm. So she has to expend a lot more energy than the male does. So that's why she's not sitting on the nest. She's got to go out and find food and keep doing her thing. The males will sit on the nest for about two months. The incubation period is about 58 to 59 days. This usually occurs sort of June, July, roughly. And that's what and the emu is high in the sky, high overhead, wow. kind of horizontal. And the UI people see it as a male emu this time. So it's gone from being a female running to now it's a male sitting on the nest. Ah, right. And then starting in August, over the next couple of months, all these chicks begin hatching. And now it's seen as the emu in the Milky Way is kind of perpendicular to the horizon. It's seen as a male getting up off the nest because the chicks are starting to hatch. This is also the time the males begin rearing the young. And that is reflected on the land because a lot of Bora initiation ceremonies were held during this time. Mm. And the initiation ground varied a bit. There's usually two circles, a larger circle and a smaller circle connected by a pathway. Mm. And they were reflected as being the sky Bora and the ground Bora. They were aligned to the position of the Milky Way in the southwest at that time of the year. And it was representative of the men bringing the boys into manhood just as the male emus are bringing the chicks. And then, of course, the, the emu began sort of continue to flip around where it's very low on the horizon and they see it's sort of sitting in the water holes, displacing the water, and then it starts to get dry in the summertime. So I'm not even telling the story of this. No, I don't even no. the story yet. <laughs> it's just talking about the scientific elements of that. So the position of the emu in the sky throughout the year tells you about the behavior of the emu. It tells about the changing season. It tells you about food economics. And the interesting thing is the emu, its perception of, of what it's doing and how they see it changes. Even though the stars may not have physically moved, they perceive it as being a female running or a male sitting on the nest or getting up off the nest or whatever throughout the year. Hmm. So it's quite remarkable to see a totally different way of looking at a constellation and what it tells you. Out of everything you've studied, what's the indigenous astronomical knowledge that you know that's bl- that blew your mind when you finally you sat, actually put you on your bum and you sat down and went i wow that's i would never have thought that was possible that they managed to do that or learn this well i think the one that that got me was the twinkling stars twinkling stars it seems so simple we have lullabies about it the star the twinkling stars are beautiful it's inspiration for art and poetry when I sat down, I actually read something about this, and I thought it was from Melanesia, the Solomon Islands, something like that, somewhere, about how they would read the twinkling of the stars to predict weather. I thought, okay, that kind of makes sense. But I just, I never thought about that before. Mm-hmm. And then when I sat down with the elders on Mare, Murray Island, I asked them about this, and they started telling me all this stuff about the twinkling of stars, all these different layers of knowledge, how it's tied in with wind, it's tied in with moisture, it's tied in with temperature, mm. how fast are the stars twinkling, that tells you about the amount of turbulence. This is not huh. this is not me talking about the physics, this is them mm. talking about it. They always talk about reading the stars. 
how you can look at them and interpret their positions and their changes, even subtle changes. Mm. Just for our audience who may not be quite aware of this, if I want to do some visual astronomy, like with my own telescope, I, I'd like to go out on a clear, cold night so the air is not very mobile. On a, on a hot summer's night, you get the shaky sort of wind and the shaky, the shaky air, so it makes the stars change a bit more. So that's... A telescope? Sounds like training wheels to me, buddy. <laughs> that's right. So just, just, yeah, so just some, some people who don't may use a telescope may not realise that you want to have as clear a night as possible, that's a cold clear night in, mm. in my opinion and that's the key thing that got me because i spent a couple years searching for exoplanets using telescopes at siding spring mm-hmm. oh, and yeah. for us as astronomers stellar scintillation twinkling is something that's a pain in the ass we want to get rid of that mm. we're trying to overcome it it's not useful it's a hindrance but when i was learning from these elders they're talking about how it's extremely beneficial and how you look at the way the stars twinkle are they, are they kind of fuzzy or are they really sharp and do they change color so mm-hmm. one of was telling me that if the stars look a little bit fuzzy, they're twinkling, and they appear very blue, then you know it's going to storm. And I remember sitting <laughs> down thinking about, what, the, what does blue have to do? Why is mm-hmm. it blue? And then it dawned on me. And that was the moment that I realized how little I knew, despite having all these degrees in astrophysics, how little mm-hmm. that I really thought about this. Because water absorbs red and green wavelengths of light, not blue. It's very poor at absorbing blue wavelengths ah. of light. Mm-hmm. So if there's a lot of humidity in the atmosphere, a lot of moisture – the wind is turbulent, and the stars are appearing very blue. That means that's being absorbed by that moisture. Oh, it's wow. a perfect recipe for a storm. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, oh, well, this is, you know, this is really phenomenal kind of stuff. Yes. So, you know, and then I find out from a colleague in the northern Dene, Athabascan people of Arctic Canada and Alaska, very similar. They, they have lots of different ways of reading the way the stars twinkle. So that opened up a whole oh, new goodness. world for me, yeah. seeing something that is – a hindrance in Western astrophysics, but when you look at it from an indigenous perspective, it's very useful because you can predict weather, you can predict seasonal change. And they actually have in the Torres Strait a song about this. And it was one of my first trips up to the island, and my main link there was Professor Martin Nakata. He's a Torres Strait Islander, he's an academic, he's the pro-vice chancellor indigenous at JCU, and he brought me up there. He has the community meet up at the school on the top of the island. And he asked me to pull my, my camcorder out, and they start singing songs. And, of course, they're all in language. They're all in Mary and Mary. I have no idea what they're singing about, but it's beautiful. And when I was talking with the elder, and he says, you know, we've, we've got a song about this. I said, really? He's like, yeah, you've got it on your, oh, wow. your, your camera. I was like, what are you talking about? So he tells me about the song I have on there. And then I go back and I, I look at it. And the song is called Where Naskaisrida. Where means star. Naskaisrida essentially means twinkling. <laughs> so the song is talking about, it's in language, in Mary of Mir, hmm. it's talking about how at the end of the year, you look up at the stars, it'll be very calm on the ground. It says, you know, why are the stars, why is it so calm tonight? Why are the stars twinkling like embers in a fire? It's a sign of the big wind, the awog, that's going to shift rain clouds from the south to the northwest. Wow. So it's, me- so it's in-depth meteorology encoded into language. Exactly. And it's all oh. about looking at when the stars twinkle at the end of the year, the end of the Nege, before the monsoon kooky comes in, you get the shifting of the trade trade winds oh that are dominated by the southeasterlies and the northwesterlies. So they're talking about how the period will be the doldrums, very calm on the ground. It's very clear, beautiful, hot weather. Mm. And you look up at the stars twinkling, and that sort of tells you by how hard they're twinkling that time of the year when to prepare for the coming cookie season, the monsoon season. Oh my so I'm sitting here just thinking, and I go back to my camera, and I'm looking at this video, and I'm like, what an idiot am I? They're, they're sitting there singing the song about the twinkling stars, and I go to the elder, and I'm like, I have no idea. Have you ever heard about the twinkling stars? Does that tell you anything? He sort of rolls his eyes like, oh, all I'm, right, I'm amazed go. he didn't pat you on the head. <laughs> it's like, oh, well. it's well. funny because when I sat down with this particular elder, he heard my accent. He's like, oh, are you American? I'm like, yes. 
And then he starts quizzing me on all kinds of American government and civics mm. and stuff. Mm. And it was real embarrassing because I didn't know any of this stuff. And he's sitting there just sort of like sort of nodding his head and smiling, you know. And then he starts telling me about language. It's very obvious that he studied linguistics, like formally mm. studied linguistics. Mm. I think it was his opportunity to show this, you know, this little American academic who thought he was a bit clever that he doesn't, you know, <laughs> A, he doesn't know as much as he thinks. And B, he's not talking to some uneducated old man. You know, like mm. this, this, these elders are very knowledgeable on worldly events and they're highly educated. Mm. So that, that was a great experience. And the, the other one, if we've got time for yeah, sure. was the, the variability of stars. Oh, yes. Okay. Right. Oh, yes. And, of course, that ties up with scintillation, right? Because that is technically variability. Mm-hmm. So a few years ago, I brought a master's student in to do a project looking at these old records of Daisy Bates. So Daisy Bates is an Irish woman who came to Australia late 1800s, or early 1900s. And she spent like 20 years living on a mission in Uldia in South Australia. And she wrote a lot about her interactions with the Aboriginal people and their knowledge systems. And of course, it's peppered with the same biases and language that nowadays be very cringeworthy, mm. still very patronizing. But the, the record she wrote contained a bit of astronomy. Now, this is the Great Victoria Desert. This is Desert Mob. And she recounts one of the stories about Orion, Niruna, and the Pleiades. Mm. And he's sort of chasing out, he falls in love with the sisters, which don't reciprocate his feelings. They're also a bit too young for him, but he, you know, he's, he's a man, he's very proud of himself. He's very arrogant. He's a womanizer. So he's nice. trying to <laughs> pursue the sisters and the euphemism they use, the Daisy Bates, he's trying to make them his wives, mm-hmm. but I'll let you draw, you know, read between the lines about what he's <laughs> right. really trying to do. Yep. Okay. <laughs> and their eldest sister was represented by the V shape of the Hyades, which in the Greek traditions is Taurus the bull. Yes. Okay. And she knows that he's a coward inside. She knows he's a womanizer, and she's not scared of him. So she taunts him, and that V-shape is her legs taunting him (laughs) and sort of keeping him away from the sisters and and making fun of him and humiliating him. So he gets very angry at her, and he creates fire magic in his right hand, which is the star Betelgeuse. Now, Mm -hmm. to give you a quick little bit of background here, the way Daisy Bates talked about the man in Orion, Niruna, is exactly the same orientation as the Greek version of Orion. That's, yes, that weirds me out because we, we call the Pleiades the seven sisters and they're, so they're women and the Orion's a hunter, is a man, yet in, in this indigenous story, it's exactly the same. It's, that's it is, you, so yes. weird. Well, it can't be coincidence. It can't, we could be, but it's, it's I'd, probably coincidence. I'd, it surprises me. It, or there could be an earth story, an it's earlier a good story. Coincidence. It could be an earlier story. Well, that you find from. this motif around the world. Oh, right. You find this oh. around the world. And we're, we're actually on a separate thing altogether. We're doing a big astro psychology research project over the next couple of years, looking at pattern recognition to try to address to see if there's a psychological foundation to why so many constellations are seen in similar ways around the world. Wow. But don't yeah. want to digress into that too much. That's mm. a whole whole other conversation. We can, which is we can get you back in the future for that one. <laughs> oh, I, I can ramble on about this stuff forever. <laughs> now, the thing about that story is he creates fire magic in his right hand, mm. which is a star of Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse, mm. however you want to pronounce mm-hmm. it, and it causes it to brighten and get hotter. Mm. But she counters it by fire magic in her left foot, Aldebaran. And she kicks sand in his face, which humiliates him, and uh-huh. all the other stars around laugh at him, and his fire magic dies down. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he comes back again a short time later, but she's not ready for him the second time, so she has to call on Baba, the father dingo, to come in. Baba f- attacks Naruna, grabs him, and starts shaking him, and his fire magic dies down again. Now, when we first saw this, a woman named Serena Frederick did a master's thesis back in the day, and she mentioned this story and suggested that it was talking about the variability. 
Mm-hmm. Beetlejuice, sorry. Yep. And we thought, okay, let's expand on this in some more detail. And sure enough, when we look at the traditions, it seems to be talking about the variability of Beetlejuice, which varies by a full magnitude mm. over the course of roughly 400 days. There's a couple of different periods. Uh, but that's sort of the, the main period between it going from its brightest and, and faintest magnitude. And then Aldebaran is a very irregular variable. It's mm. Variation only changes by about two-tenths of a magnitude. So it does change. It is noticeable, but it's very that's very faint. That's very slight, yes. Wow. It is very slight. In addition to the variability of Betelgeuse and the variability of Aldebaran being discussed in the story, we didn't realize this at the time. I only realized this a couple of years ago. That's talking about the relative periodicities of these two stars. Mm. Betelgeuse, is, it's semi-regular. You know, it's about every, every year and a couple months it does the whole cycle. But... Aldebaran doesn't. Mm-hmm. And the story, when his fire magic comes back and she wasn't able to counter it, she had to call on the Father Dingo, Baba, to come and help out. Almost certainly explains how Aldebaran will go through a period of bright changes and then a long period of nothing. Yeah, because she's not, she's, she's not ready. She, mm. she, yeah, I can't, yeah, that's amazing. Oh, wow. So that was quite phenomenal, you know. And then we published a paper on that. And then a colleague from Adelaide, Philip Clark, he's an anthropologist, sent me a totally different tradition from the Narendiri people south of the Kurong, down south of Adelaide. Totally different story. In their story, there was this young initiate called Wayangari, which means a red man. He was covered in red or going through this period of initiation where he had to go period of time without food, without contact with people. He had to be naked, you know, sort of a time he had to prove himself, mm-hmm. right? And he goes to like a lake or a river and, and bends down to get some water using a reed as a straw. And some of the ochre falls off the water and sort of washes down shore and these two women see it. And they're like, well, where's this, where's this ochre coming from? And they sort of look around, and they finally catch up and find Wyangar. And they're like, wow, you know, he's a you know, he's mid-teens. He's really fit, good-looking, <laughs> you know. And they, they want to make him their husband. This mm-hmm. is a euphemism that's always used. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> they, they sort of stalk him as he goes back to his, his house that evening. And when he goes into his house, they morph into emus and make the noise to draw him out, knowing he's a hunter, he's going to come out and, you know. Mm-hmm. So he, he comes running out of his house, ready to attack these emus, and then they morph back into the beautiful women, and they convince him to invite them back into the hut, and <laughs> they have their fun for the evening. Mm. The problem with this is twofold. Number one, as an Arambi, as an initiate, it's taboo for him to have contact with anybody else, especially with other women, and especially in that context. Mm-hmm. The other, that, that enough is pu- severe punishment. The other problem is it turns out these two women were his sisters-in-law. <laughs> Uh-oh. Now, Oops. that might seem strange. Like, how would you not know your sister-in-law? But in a lot of Aboriginal cultures, when you reach a certain age and get married, certain parts of your family become taboo to you. Or you cut off contact. Oh, right. And this is part of the complex marriage system. And, you know, it, it has, shares multiple purposes. And one of them being is preventing inbreeding. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that his mother had seen what happened. I mean, ooh, yikes, right? <laughs> That's a, so she wow. was super upset that her, you know, one son had broken his sacred taboo, and the other son was sort of the main sky ancestor, Nepali. Hmm. Those were his wives. So his mother <laughs> went and told Nepali. Oh, no. This is, this is one of many versions of the story, but they all have the same general sort of theme. Mm. So Nepali is infuriated. He comes back. He sets the, the house on fire while they're inside of it. Oh. The three of them manage to get out and escape, and they're running downstream. And knowing that their punishment for doing what they did is death, oh, wow. okay. he casts a spear into the, into the Milky Way and pulls himself and the two women up into the sky. 
where they become a bright red star called Wyangari. And every September it's high in the sky. And this tells people about the coming of spring and warns them about sacred taboos. And <laughs> off, you know, he's, he's sitting in the canoe, which is Scorpius, and just over to ah, right. his left, emu in the sky. So there's all this stuff the story is talking about. Well, it also talks about how Wyangari every once in a while becomes hotter and brighter. And this signifies his sexual passion. And, mm. and this warns <laughs> the people not to break sacred tradition. Yes. The problem with the story is that the anthropologists at the time didn't have any idea what they were talking about. They thought, oh, a bright red star. Oh, it must be Mars. Mm. Oh. So this got repeated through the literature for 150 years. It's Mars, 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 Mars. And <laughs> my colleague, Philip Clark, sent this paper to me. He had done this full big review of all these different versions of the story around the country. And he said he didn't feel comfortable. He didn't, it didn't seem Mars was right. Something mm. just wasn't you know, sitting right with him. And Philip He's not an astronomer, but he's written about Aboriginal astronomy before, so he's got a basic working knowledge of it. And he sent me the paper, and I read through it. You know, I hadn't even looked at the story before in any sort of detail. And I said, well, I can tell you exactly what stars these are. There's about 15 different lines of evidence that show this is Antares. Right. And the two stars on either side are Tau and Sigma Scorpii. It's... Even the map the anthropologist wow. drew showed that. But they, <laughs> missed, they didn't know anything about astronomy, so they, they wrote it down wrong. Yeah. And then that's when I sat there and went, holy shit, wait a second. There's something significant here. The brightness changes of Wyangari, they had attributed to Mars. So sometimes, as you know, Mars is closer to us. Sometimes it's further away. So mm. it changes in how bright it is. But Mars, a planet can't be a seasonal indicator star for mm. all the reasons you know. Mm -hmm. But Antares is perfect. And <laughs> Antares is a variable star that varies by 1.4 magnitudes. And everything fits. So here's another example of stellar variability. And I found that ironic wow. that they would make this confusion because Antares, literally meaning the rival of Ares, who was the Roman equivalent or the Greek equivalent of Mars, quite literally means <laughs> not Mars. Not Mars. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And I, I like this is also a tie-in. Uh, people talk about you know, the layers of knowledge and the coding of knowledge into indigenous culture and, and uh, stories. But here's a problem when you don't join things together, when you don't have arts and sciences joined together and stories and anthropology and all the sciences mixed. You can suddenly go, oh, I think this must be Mars when you're not an astronomer because you're an anthropologist. And so you're looking at one part. It's only when you get all the different knowledges together can you actually get real knowledge out of it that you can actually work at what the heck anyone's talking about that's exactly right it's exactly right and one of the frustrating things i find from coming from the american university system for all the faults that it has or whatever we are required to have a very broad range mm. of backgrounds so even though i did my bachelor's degree in physics i mean i took a long time to get my degree and i took almost double the courses i was required to i took like 60 courses and i should have only taken about 40 but <laughs> I took all these courses, even if you do a physics degree, you have to do courses in, in humanities and social sciences. Mm -hmm. And I did a bunch of anthropology and archaeology courses. In fact, I did enough that I could have got a, a minor in that subject. I didn't for whatever stupid reason, but I even <laughs> took graduate level courses. But I've come here to Australia and found a lot of people who have been in you know, anthropology, archaeology, history, mm. who haven't had science or mathematics since like high school, and sometimes not even since like year eight or nine. And that's surprising because that's required for everybody in the U.S. system. 
I, I don't mean to bag on anthropologists because it does happen a lot. And I know that there's a lot of anthropologists who have a, a diverse range of backgrounds, and some of them do come from the sciences. Ah, uh, they're only I, human. Uh, yes. <laughs> right. Uh, and I can't pretend that I'm an anthropologist because I'm not. You know, there's a whole lot of social theory that I've had to learn over the years. Also, so, we're fine with you you causing beef on the podcast. We we, we don't we don't mind being the the uh, showdown center for any sort of anthropologist astronomer beef thing. This is great. This is like we two oh. two pack two pack versus um. Oh, big, yeah, that's, that's, that's how it all begins, and it'll be like throwing down. I love it. I, lo- I love the idea of PhDs just going at each other. Look, we're happy with it. Go oh, it. you're going to start – you're opening a big old can of worms there. <laughs> so what's happened is I've spent like 40% of my career going back and fixing all the fuck-ups that the early anthropologists missed. They <laughs> conflated terminology. They misidentified things. They, they didn't have the background astronomy. I've met anthropologists in the past who just didn't see the point. Like, so what? What does it matter what star it is? You know, they were interested more in the social aspects of Mm. it. And I said, well, it's actually really important for a whole lot of reasons. And, Mm. you know, X, Y, Z, I go into the detail. Mm. I also say, if you're an anthropologist, chances are you're not aboriginal yourself. Mm. You're going into this community. You're collecting knowledge. And then I'm guessing at some point you're going to give it back to them, which didn't happen for a long time, which is why so many communities are very suspicious of anthropologists and archaeologists. If you give it back to me, you need to make sure that's right, or at least as right as you can make it. So if elders are telling you about their stars, you better make sure that you're getting the right stars they're talking about. Mm. And so much of that wasn't happening. And information being given back to communities was, was, was incorrect. It's insane. There are a whole new generation of astrophysics students who are aboriginal who are coming up into this space. You can find information about them and everything else related to this at aboriginalastronomy.com.au. We'll put that in the show notes. Absolutely. Is there any book, you mentioned Dark Emu, is, is there any other sort of beginner level book for non-astronomers that you think they need to read, people should read about Australian astronomy and indigenous astronomy? An Aboriginal student and myself are writing it as we speak. Oh, excellent. And we, will, we will get you back on to talk about it or get them to talk about it uh, when it's done. Fantastic. Looking forward to chatting with you guys again. Thank you again to Dr. Dwayne Hamacher. Hamacher. It's like Schumacher, but... Thank you again to Dr. Dwayne for coming in and telling us all about those wonderful sciences. It's amazing, mind-blowing stuff. I really, I love this stuff. I wish I'd been taught this stuff at school. There's so much we don't know. I want to know it all. I want to know it all. I was really impressed. The custodians of where I live in Perth, the the Wajak Noongar people, the Wajak people is sort of like the nation, which is what we'd call Perth, the modern day city of Perth. Mm-hmm. But the Noongar nation goes all the way about 600 kilometers to the north of where I am and about 800 kilometers to the east. And I live on the coast. There's this big lump of land, but the Noongar region is kind of like a language area. They all speak the same language or very similar languages. So the Noongar is like a language group as far as I'm aware. And the Wajak are the pe- are people in the area I live in. There's lots of different nations. And it's really cool because the people who lost all their languages, because if you have an oral culture and they take out all the languages and people, they all die, then they can't pass on their language. It all dies out. But the Noongar language is doing really well. So other Western Australian indigenous people who have lost their language have asked the Noongar people, hey, can we use your language and call it our language? And they've gone, sure. So now the Noongar language is like spreading across Western Australia as the indigenous language. I'm sure that's a really ham-fisted way of putting it. But I was pretty impressed by it. So, yeah, the, hello to the Wajak Noongar people, if there's any listening to this podcast. And if they can understand your They language. speak English. They speak English, Dan. That's the point. This is their read I'm just saying <laughs> that now they've got the option to just speak they their do. language. They do, but I, I That's think... all I do. I mean, that, yes. that doesn't reflect well on me. No. Like I'm, no. A, I'm a monolinguist. And the thing is, 
look, look at the trouble I get myself into just speaking one language. Can you imagine <laughs> if I spoke a couple? That's true. I'm amazed the frog princess hasn't murdered you, to be honest. But that's oh. that's she's a saint. She's she, a saint. She's muttering stuff, but using words I don't understand. But like <laughs> from the intent, I think yes. I'm fine. I think I'm fine. <laughs> Look, all I know is about the French is that if she wanted to kill you, you'd be upside down on a road and on fire. So uh, yep. that would be yep, – that's, that's how they deal with it. That's how they deal with all their problems. Send it on the road, turn it upside down, set it on fire. You what have been listening to Dan <laughs> at smartenough.org. Also, Greg at smartenough.org. What have we done? Get along to the website smartenough.org and click on any of the buttons if you want to do any of the things oh, that you so want to do buttons. at the end of a podcast. You can press them. You can press them. You can go to like get like dopamine. Bleep, bleep, Ooh. bleep. Oh, oh that's oh. a good idea. I should make yeah. the buttons only work randomly. I should yes. put them in a Skinner box. Yes, that's right. Mm. That's a that's a great way to get s- subscriptions where it, 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 they can only actually subscribe once every four clicks. <laughs> And occasionally it sends them a prize. Not very often, but occasionally. This is good. We can make this happen. If you would like to support us, you can just tell everyone. That's what yes. that's all we're doing. Please do. That's what we're doing now. That's what we're doing now. If you would like to support us financially, you don't have to. But ah. if you'd like to, you can go to, oddly enough, smartenough.org. And that's you right. can click on one of the buttons. Woo-hoo. And you can drop some money in the tip jar. Or you can buy a t-shirt. Or you can subscribe to us on Patreon. And you can subscribe with $2 a month, which means thank you so much as a group. $5 a month, which means that we thank you individually. It's just like we call you out in a nice way. We go, you're amazing. So this is the Comedy Blimp crew. I'm just going to yes. thank you now. Gary Heather, Andrew Potts, Lindsay Jenkinson, Andrew Trousdale, Evil One, EarthDog58, Matt Ewers, Phil Holland, Michael Barnes, Ilana Mitchell, Elizabeth Yunkin, Steve Eichenhout, Matthew Toy, Andrew Whitehurst, Borden O'Hare, and Ava Greenbury. Yes, I've been uh, I've been shuffling the names each time so that oh, no. no one gets oh yeah I, I always get mentioned first or, ah. oh, I can't believe I get, have to wait until the end maybe if they gave us six dollars they could get moved to the top no, no. <laughs> that's a marketing genius yeah. right yeah. there see that see yeah 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 and oh. if they only gave us six dollars every fourth podcast then the, we'd, we'd do it anyway for them because we're desperate for the hits oh yeah yeah they could skin a box us Ooh, i don't like the yeah. sound of that no 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 don't you hate it don't you hate it when psychology is used against you but we do end up with more money so yep. yes don't throw me in the briar patch oh <laughs> don't please oh the brambles oh no and by a briar patch, Greg means the money patch. Please money don't patch. actually throw us in bri- the briar patch. We are not hares. It's true. And I think that's it. I think that's all we have to do. No. No, uh, Dan. Okay. No. You have to insult people. Okay, great. Great. All right. So it's June here in Australia. <laughs> it's June everywhere. It is. Oh, it's not June necessarily. Not, well, not in space. And not it's if the- you're listening to this podcast in four in weeks. In the future, the future, the future. And you know what? Everyone's going to be listening to this podcast in the future. Wow, that's deep. That's yeah. very deep. Yeah. Very so, lovely. Even you, because of the delay of this information across the Nullarbor, uh, are experiencing my part in the future. Well, I, I don't exist in, in time and space as you do, so I'm, very, I'm technically experiencing this and the past and the future all at the same time, Dan. All right, so I have to abuse some people who are yes. on our top tier of Patreons. God, yes, this, yes. I can't believe this Top and Tales is going to require so much editing. <laughs> this is supposed to be a quick one. My dinner's cooling. <laughs>
Okay, so there are five patrons who have paid the top tier 15 bucks US a month. Far too much. Like, that's an absurd (laughs) amount to be paying us. (laughs) Okay, because it's June and that's winter in Australia, I've themed all of my insults to be about winter and the cold. Ooh, lovely. Okay. I like it. Scott Driscoll. I've randomized these guys as well. That's, that's, I've noticed. Scott Driscoll, you are like stepping in a puddle wearing only socks. Oh, that's awful. I don't enjoy that at all. That's no no fun. Absolutely no fun. Dustin Fallon, you are the human equivalent of sitting on a cold toilet seat. (laughs) He makes my genitals cool down and freak out. That's weird. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Eric Wilson says we don't have to insult him anymore. So thank you. You are a ray of Chad on a comfy couch. Oh, lovely. Steve Stewart, you are the rivulet of cold sweat that runs down your armpit when you realise your jacket doesn't breathe well. <laughs> you know that feeling? That's it's awful. awful. It's, it's an awful. You're it's like, a... oh, finally uh, protected from this, the uh, horrendous yeah. parts of the outside world. Uh, and then the inside world comes out of you and it's all it happens all over again. Yeah, no, I don't like it. No, yuck. Ugh. Yuck. Yuck. And finally, Al Batson. You are icy feet pressed up against you under the doona. The only touch from a partner who no longer loves you. Oh, wow. Oh, feel they, bad they're not paying me to be fun, for, for oh. them to be fun. Oh, no, they're it's paying true. Me, them to be cruel. Oh, that's quite cruel. Oh, that's... God. <laughs> I've had a gutful. <laughs> and as we always like to say... Voodoo! What? It's an indigenous word for penis. Nice. You are welcome to swear. We censor f bombs, um, but uh, you're welcome to swear. But you're also welcome not to. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Dwayne Hamacher, is that correct? Hamacher. Hamacher. Okay, Hamacher. Thank you very much. You sound like a race car driver. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. So, no, so it's just we, we lost you for a bit. Australia's a wonderful internet system. <laughs> so, oh, well, all getting, copper, all the way. I'm yeah. getting NBN in tomorrow. <laughs> oh, lucky you. Yeah, they're bringing the cogs and the, and, and, the, oh. and the furnaces to get it started. Oh, good. Oh, good grief. Good grief.